Welcome to the Books of Titans podcast, where I seek truth in the world's best books. I'm your host, Eric Rostad, coming to you from the beautiful Books of Titans studio in Franklin, Tennessee. My goal is to read 52 books per year and share what I'm learning. I'll talk a bit about each book, tie ideas together from a variety of genres, and share the one thing I always hope to remember from each book. Today I'm going to cover The Bookseller of Florence by Ross King, the story of the manuscripts that illuminated the Renaissance. This is book eight for my 2022 reading list. Well, as the title would suggest, this is a book about a bookseller in Florence and its pre-Renaissance. And what that means is we're talking the 1400s, kind of mid-1400s, early to mid-1400s in Florence, Italy. And we're talking about a bookseller by the name of Vespasiano de Bestici. And so this was a real person. This is uh, nonfiction book. This is this this really happened. And this bookseller, Vespasiano, was a bookseller on a street of booksellers. And so uh, it, it reminds me in in uh, in Boston there there's this area where it's just a ton of Italian restaurants and so many other places in the U.S. You go and and you know you purposely keep. Italian restaurants away from each other, so there's no competition. But here, they're all they're all together. In in that's the sense you get in in Florence, Italy, at the time that all the booksellers are are right on the same street. They're right next to each other. They're all competing against each other, but they're also there's this lively sense of of this is where you go to to get your books. And when we say books, we're we're talking about something a little different than what what we're used to. And and that's the the beauty of the book I'm talking about today, the bookseller of Florence, because Ross King, the author, he goes into that history. He tells you how books started way back and and what they became, and even the shift that happened during Vespasiano's lifetime. Maybe you've heard of the man named Gutenberg and the printing press. Well, that happened during Vespasiano's lifetime. But Vespasiano, not only was he a bookseller, but he was also, he had, he had a little shop in the back where he had people creating books. But these books were not... The, he wasn't using a printing press like he had scribes and they were writing out the words and so it, it he when the printing press came along he was not all that thrilled about it and so it's cool i'll go into that in the next segment here the more of the the history of of books in general but what you get in this book the bookseller of florence is this history of booksellers in florence and what they were trying to do was gather the greatest works of literature of learning uh, that that had kind of been either lost, they thought lost, or they were just spread out around the world, and there were only a few copies. And so there was this thirst at the time in Florence, Italy, to gather these works and to to get to gain that knowledge that had been that had been from the past. And they they didn't want to just have it for themselves like they they wanted to gain this knowledge and put it to immediate use they wanted to to use it in politics and they wanted to to use it in in how to learn about uh people and in mankind and politics and government and and rhetoric and and all these things and and so there's just this thirst but this is this is the early 1400s and when when we think to to most of the artwork that we know uh, that we we think about during the Renaissance, that's the late 1400s and the early 1500s. So this had a huge role. This this desire for learning, this desire to to get back to the classics and and to to find these lost works, that immediately led to 
the the renaissance in art and ideas that that we know of today and so one one was a result of of the other and this was all happening together but i just i i love that that aspect of of all the booksellers being together and and as we'll find out later a lot of these artists were were hanging out in that area as well they're hanging out with with learned people and people who are, were getting access to these books. And so this whole history is tied together and it, it is really fascinating and, and it, it really comes together well in this book by Ross King. So uh, the, the author, Ross King, I've, I've read one other book by him and, and that was Brunelleschi's Dome. And so in Florence, Italy, there is uh, the, the, the main cathedral there. Uh, there's this beautiful dome and, and it was just a, a engineering masterpiece. And so Brunelleschi's Dome is about about that masterpiece. And I read that probably 16, 17 years ago, because I, I read it I, uh, for a, a trip I had taken to, to Italy, and I, I wanted to learn more. Uh, I traveled to Florence and was just fascinated by the city, not only the art, but just the architecture. And so I wanted to know as much as I could. And so I read that book at that point. So when I saw this book, I, I actually saw this book at Landmark Booksellers, where, where I am a business manager and, and it, it looked very interesting, and, and so uh, I'd seen it a few other places as well, but I decided to to get it, and I'm glad I did, but I, I was familiar with the author, so that's one reason I picked up this book in, in particular. As for reading stats, it's a 399-page book. It took me 12 hours and 12 minutes to read it. That was over a 15-day period, which averages 27 pages per day. Now, to get through all 52 books on my list this year, I need to be reading 50, either 49 or 50 pages per day. So this was on the low end. I uh, read it from February 14th through the 28th, but I also traveled during that time. And so part of it was just, uh, I, 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 I did not have as much time to, to read. And, and the reason I mention that is, is I can kind of gauge how much I like a book by how many pages I read per day. And so if, if I'm in the forties, I know I'm, I really enjoyed it and I, I just couldn't put it down and I'm sacrificing sleep to get through it. And so, but the fact that this one was 27 pages per day does not mean I didn't like it. It just, I had a lot going on with, with work and then, and then travel. Uh, so I, I, I really enjoyed this book. And if you are a book lover, if you are a bookseller, if you have anything in your life that is related to books and your love of books, then I, you, you would really enjoy, enjoy this one. Um, I like to plug the, the bookstore that, that I work at. Uh, I, I, I love being in bookstores. I, I, whenever I travel, I go to them. And so I, I, am just thrilled to be able to, to work at a bookstore here in Franklin, Tennessee. And I love offering the books that I'm reading to you, my listeners. And that is the best way that you can support this podcast is to buy your book books from Landmark. And so I'll link in the show notes, you can buy this book. And if you use the coupon code books of Titans, you'll get 10% off when you buy it and we can ship anywhere in the US. And if you're willing to pay the the shipping, we can ship anywhere in the world. So for the rest of this episode, I'm going to go uh, cover just two two more segments. The, the first segment, I'll go through a brief, brief history of the book and, and not this book, but the book, like what we think of as a book. And, and and how that came into being, how it changed, and even the the momentous changes that occurred during Vespasiano 
his lifetime, during during his lifetime. And so the bookseller of Florence, Vespasiano, lived during an incredible period of history. He played a big part in books and what we know of, of, of books and even the most famous libraries that we know of in, in Italy. He had a, a big hand in those. So that's segment two. Segment three, I'll, I'll close out with the one thing, my one key takeaway from the bookseller of Florence. Well, this book is a lot of things. Uh, it's a first and foremost a story of Vespasiano, this bookseller. But he's a bookseller in Florence, so you're also getting a, a history of Florence at the time, and uh, really at the, the start of the Renaissance. And then you're also getting a history of books themselves, and that was fascinating. I, I loved learning about that as a lover of book books myself. Just knowing more and learning more about that history was was really fun. And so I want to share some of the things I learned in segment two here. So books started out with the use of papyrus, which was a reed, and it, it could be made into a, a paper uh, that was then rolled into a scroll. So this, this papyrus would be this huge long sheet, and then it would be rolled into a scroll, and then the scribes would write along this, this uh, papyrus. And so you could see one portion of that, but say you were toward the beginning of this, this scroll, like if you wanted to read something at the end, it would be quite a pain to get to the end to read that section. So I, I think of it as, uh, this will date me here, but I think of it as a tape. That's how I listened to music when I was growing up. And if you were on the first song and you wanted to listen to, oh, say the the fifth song, you you just kind of had to guess. Like you hit the fast forward button and, and then you would just stop it and you hoped you got to the right place. So in the evolution of the book, you go from the scroll to a, more of a book like we know now, where it's a rectangular shape and it's relatively small and, and you can carry it, it around. It's, it's a lot more portable. And this is also, it goes from uh, papyrus to parchment. And parchment is animal skins. And so they, they would do these animal skins and then they would kind of grind them down so they'd be fine. And there were a lot of benefits to parchment. One, it lasted longer than papyrus. Two, you it was portable. Three, a lot, lot more, uh, well, you had this pagination or pagination, and that allowed you to skip around. So when I got CDs, after having lived with tapes for so long, it was it was amazing because I could be on the first song and if I wanted to listen to the sixth song, I just hit the button and it went directly to the sixth song. Like I I could find a specific song very easily. And that's that's kind of what that's one of the benefits of going from a scroll to to a book, a, a parchment like this, is just the the ability to find a specific text. And well, who would that be important for? Well, when parchments came about, this is the last quarter of the first century AD, and Christians favored this format. They could write on both sides. They could they could skip around, find specific texts. They could they could port. It was portable. They could walk. They could go, travel around with it, and it was a lot more durable than the papyrus. And so it was very cool to learn that in this book, that, that early Christians actually did a lot of, of this early uh, use of parchment and, and books and books as we know them in, in the shape that we know them and, and all that, 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 that started around this time. 
And Christians were, early Christians were, were some of the first who transferred the knowledge from this papyrus and these scrolls to these books. And as such, they may not have desired to transfer non-Christian texts as much as Christian texts. So it's kind of an interesting to, thing to, to think about as well. Then on page 99, we get to manuscripts. And let me read this section. The word manuscript, manuscript comes from the Latin manuscriptus, which means written by hand. But any manuscript was the product of much more work than simply the writing of a single hand. It was a months or even years long multi-step process calling for the expertise of a series of tradesmen and specialist craftsmen. From parchment makers to scribes, miniaturists, gold beaters, carpenters, and blacksmiths. End quote, and then we get into the next uh, next page on just the number of animals. But but first, before I get into to that, during this time period, so during the 15th century, there were almost five million handwritten books produced in Italy. Five million. That's a lot. That's a lot of books, and these these are books that are taking a long time to make. Very expensive. Five million of them. That's uh, you know, over over a hundred years, but that's that's quite a quite a bit for for the amount of work that went into each one. Uh, here here's some information about the animals uh, that that it took. So for hundreds of years, the transmission of knowledge had depended on carnivorous appetites and good animal husbandry. Large volumes with hundreds of pages required the skins of many animals. One goat was often needed for each page of parchment in a large liturgical book, such as an antiphonary in Tiffany, while a Bible might take the skins of more than 200 animals, an entire herd of goats or flock of sheep, end quote. A Bible might take the skins of more than 200 animals. That's insane. Uh, but that's, that's what you're looking at here for some of these big books. So now, now we're, we've gone from these scrolls, these papyrus scrolls to parchment books. You're, you're getting a lot more creation of these. You're getting, uh, you're getting shops set up to to just do this, uh, whereas over the over the the many centuries, you you had these books being copied in monasteries and, and things like that. What's interesting is uh, on on page thirty four, he says that these books were not preserved in Italy, even though uh, I mean, you know, the the early texts, a lot of them you had from from Greece, and then you had a lot from uh, Rome as well, but they were not preserved. In those spots, they were preserved in places like Ireland and Northumbria and Germany, and he goes into that that history as well. And then when we reach the Middle Ages, he says this on page fifty nine: By the Middle Ages, scholars in Constantinople had embarked on a quest to retrieve and preserve the classics of ancient Greek literature, sowing showing such conscientious conscientious rigor that virtually all the Greek classics as we know them have come down to us thanks to Byzantine manuscripts copied in the 8th and 9th centuries, end quote. 8th and 9th centuries, the next thing we get to is this year 1453, which is a very momentous year, and for two reasons in particular as relates to this book. First, and, and also related to what I just read, first we have the sack of Constantinople by the Turks. And it was estimated that some 120,000 manuscripts were lost. That might be on the high end, uh, uh, maybe too high of, of an estimate, but 
a, a number of books were lost during this time. And Mehmed, the the leader, he he was actually a, a lover of books, and he wanted to save books. So even even as Constantinople is getting getting just pillaged, uh, he he personally wants to save a lot of the books as that's going on. And and he, he did save some uh, and, and had a tremendous library himself. So that's the first thing in 1453. It's it's a shock uh, that's felt in, in Italy quite a bit because, you know, they're trying to capture these classics. There's a ton of the classics in in Byzantine, in, in Constantinople, and they're lost. So tragic tragedy uh, on that sense. The other thing that happens in 1453 is the first first use of the printing press, so Gutenberg's printing press. And then the next year, 1454, is when the Gutenberg Bible, the famous Gutenberg Bible, is made. There's a lot of information in the book about that. I'm going to read one quick section. This is 263. The Gutenberg Bible required around 5,000 calfskins— for the parchment editions, and 50,000 sheets of paper for the rest. According to Peter Schaffer, the print run of Bibles, a maximum of 180 copies, had consumed more than 4,000 florins, which meant each copy cost at least 22 florins to produce, roughly the same cost price as many of Vespasiano's manuscripts. The Gutenberg Bible was, however, an exception, and most books cost far less to produce and to purchase." end quote. But uh, that Gutenberg Bible, that was not for each Bible, but 5,000 calfskins total. And then you also see a a shift here again. So now you're going from manuscripts, you're going back to, you're going back to paper. Uh, And so with, with the printing press, you are not there, it's not a scribe anymore. The scribe is not writing and copying by hand. You now have these, these plates, and you're putting you're putting letters on the plates and the letters have to be backwards and all that because you're, you're then pressing the paper or the, the parchment onto this, this press. And then you, so what that means is you've got, you, you lay out the letters, but then you can press that paper onto there and onto that ink multiple times. So now you're able to, relatively speaking, mass-produce books for the first time. And that's happening in 1453. Well, Vespasiano is a, a bookseller at that point. He's also a book producer. Uh, he's He's got his shop in the back, and he's making these books. But he's not into this this printing press. This, this could cut into his business. So it's a really interesting thing. You know, this is happening during his lifetime, but he is... He's the parchment person. He is. He has his set of scribes, and they are beautiful books. And a lot of them remain to this day. And they are they are works of art in themselves. Uh, the way they're they're done, the, the art. There, I mean, there's art in these books. Like they would make just letters. Like the first letter, the drop cap. It would be just this gorgeous letter with with colors and paint and all that. And so these are works of art, and now comes along this thing that can mass-produce books. This is a huge shift. Even though, I, so now you you look like almost 20 years later, and you don't get a full Bible that is, uh, that are, I mean, other than the Gutenberg Bible, you don't really start getting Bibles 
as we know them today until 1471, and they can only be purchased by the rich. So you just think about, I mean, in the room I'm in right now, there are probably 20 Bibles. And you just think back to that time, and it was near impossible to get a Bible. And now, just to, to think of how how readily available they are now. So also going from parchment to paper, it is much cheaper. Uh, to the printing press, it's cheaper. And so you're getting volume now. So you have more books out there and you have greater access because the cost of books is going down. So this is not something just for the rich anymore. Now books can open up. Another interesting thing is that almost all these books at the time are being written in Latin. So they're not even being written in the language that people speak. And so, yes, the learned, they would know Latin, uh, but 70% of all books published before 1500 were in, in Latin. So Florence was late in adopting this printing press, this new technology. Uh, Ross King gives a few different uh, reasons for that. But first, he says the Florence should, that Florence should have been so reluctant to embrace this new technology. Florence, which for decades had been at the forefront of artistic, literary, intellectual, and technological change, is simply astonishing. End quote. And then he gives three reasons for this. First, he says Lorenzo de' Medici, kind of the, he was in government, he was, he was the, the wealthy man. He did not like this technology or just he just didn't have interest in it because he was interested in the parchment books these beautiful works of art and so just the fact that that he wasn't into it and he was one of the leading men didn't uh, that that was one reason a second there's not a university in florence uh so other places that had a university there, there was more of a a need for for these printing presses. And then the third reason that Ross King gives is just the prominence of Vespasiano, the the person that this book is about. And he was not interested in it either. It, it was going to cut into his his business. He was in the business of making these beautiful works of art. Another really astonishing fact you you come across in this book is that the literacy rates were higher before the printing press. So just because you have a bunch of books being released now, it doesn't, it didn't, it, there wasn't this exact correlation that, okay, now everyone's going to start reading because now we have all these books. So that was kind of an interesting thing to learn. But the, the greatest thing that I learned in this book is just the connection between what Vespasiano was doing, the, 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 these books and how it influenced the artists. And you, you see this, this influence, um, there, there's, there's talk of this poet in, in Florence at the time in, 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 and then, uh, his name is Angelo Ambrogini and he influenced Michelangelo and Botticelli. And then Vespasiano's bookshop was just a few doors down from Leonardo's father's shop. And so you can just imagine that Leonardo is around Vespasiano. Vespasiano in, in this bookshop, in, he's holding meetings of, of learned people at the time, and they're discussing works of Plato and Cicero. And, and anytime a new book comes in, they're, they're hearing it read, and, and, and Vespasiano is in a lot of these meetings. And just to think that just a few doors down is Leonardo's father's shop, and that Leonardo would have been around this would have been around this street of booksellers in Florence. 
is just a, a really incredible thing to, to consider in that this desire for learning it led to it 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 led to the flowering of the of the arts and the, the renaissance as we know it now into segment three and the one thing my one key takeaway from this book the bookseller of florence well in the last segment i told you that this is a book about three main things where you've got vespasiano you've got florence and then you've got books and they all kind of tie together in in this final thing, in my one key takeaway. And it's this, that Vespasiano spent, the, he spent his life in, in the first part of his life built, building on this idea that classics could illuminate the world. And so he was, and others were scouring all the pockets of the world to, to find the classics, to find these lost works. And it was such a joy when they would find one and they would, they would bring it back to Florence and the scribes would copy it and the books would be read and they would be discussed and they would be immediately put into practice. You know, these were, these were, these were learned men. They were men in charge of, of the government. They were men in charge of, of different aspects of Florentine society. And when they were getting these books, they were, they were taking the ideas and putting them right into use. And so Vespasiano had this, this idea that the classics could illuminate the world, that they could solve problems, they could solve political problems and, and spiritual problems and personal problems. And that drove him. But he also lived in Florence. And Florence, during his lifetime, experienced war and pestilence, and intrigue, and murder, and plagues, and awful things. And that soured him on that, on that idea. It soured him on this idea that the classics could illuminate the world. And this is what Ross King says about it. By the late 1470s, if not earlier, Vespasiano seems to have lost faith in the ability of the classics to illuminate the world, to chase away the darkness and to reform society. End quote. And and that's just kind of a it's a tragic thing because I I, I have some of that idea in my head, like the that the that reading through the classics or, or going back to the classics can can illuminate the world. And yet by him living in Florence and experiencing what he experienced in his lifetime in Florence, he soured of that idea. And so all these things tie together. You've got Vespasiano, the, the, the man. You, you've got him as the bookseller, uh, the creation of books, the gathering of books from all over all corners of the world. And Florence all tie together in, in that what was actually happening in Florence soured him on the idea that that the classics could illuminate the world. So maybe not the, the, the happiest of one things, but, but something I'm still thinking about and something that, uh, that interested me in this book. I guess another thing that, that I, I think about after, after reading this is just how fortunate we are. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sitting with bookshelves in front of me and how easy it is to get a book. I mean, I can order a book and have it at my house the next day. And you think of most of, of history and, and that's not even close to what is possible. Uh, the ability to just have a, a, 
a row, rows and rows of classics on my shelves. And, and you look at what went into copying those and, and trans transmitting those over the years. It's just an astounding thing. Like a library, a personal library or a, a library, a library of any kind is, is an incredible thing. And you, you, you really see that when, when you read this book. I hope you read it. Uh, if you are a bookseller, if you are a book lover, if you love the classics, you will really enjoy this book just to see how they all came together and, and what went into making them. That's going to do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Uh, again, you can purchase this book from Landmark Booksellers. I will link to it in the show note show notes and just use Books of Titans as the coupon code and you'll get 10% off. You can email me at Eric at booksoftitans.com. I'd love to hear what you thought of this episode, and I'd love to hear from you if you have also read this book. One of the reasons I started this project is because I wanted to connect with other people who are reading the same books as I was. And so if you've read this book and you caught something that I missed in this episode, I'd love to hear what that thing is. You can follow Books of Titans on Instagram or Twitter. And my website is stock full of resources to help you find the best books and to create your own reading list. I'll be back in a couple weeks, and that episode will likely be covering The Marriage of Figaro. I just did a deep dive into the opera. I read the play upon which the opera is based. I read the libretto of which uh, DuPont took Beaumarquet's play and then turned it into what would become the text for the opera. I went through the musical score that Mozart wrote. And then I am uh, going to watch the actual opera. And then I'm going to cover that in, in an episode and go in deep into each aspect of it. So I'm really looking forward to that. That will probably be the next episode. Until then, keep reading, keep learning, and keep listening. I'm out.